Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The snow-capped peaks of the Himalayas are instantly recognisable, but the critical role these mountains play in Asia's climate, hydrology, ecology and geopolitics is mostly underplayed. Despite this importance, or perhaps because of them, there are a number of threats to the environment, many of which intersect, and the Himalayas will need careful management and thoughtful intervention if they are to survive both as a natural environment and as a resource. Here to discuss the problems with managing the Himalayas and some potential solutions is Dr. Ruth Gamble from the Centre for the Study of the Inland and the China Studies Research Centre at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Ruth. You're welcome. And also here joining us is Dr. Alexander Davis, New Generation Network Research Fellow at La Trobe University and the Australian India Institute. Hello to you, Alex. Thanks, Matt. Together, they are contributing authors to the new issue of the La Trobe Asia Brief, Melting Opportunities, Managing Climate Change and Conflict in the Himalayas, available now from the La Trobe Asia website. Now that I've got that page of text out of the way, uh, shall we start? What is the extent of the Himalayas? What sort of territory are we talking about? Throw some facts to me. What countries are involved, etc.? Who wants to start? Depends on how you define it. Um, and I actually think that this is a complicated question, even though it doesn't appear to be so. Sometimes when geographers talk about the Himalaya, they just talk about the southern band of the mountains up from India. But within the mountains and within the communities that live within the mountains, there's a broader sense of what the Himalaya means, the land of snows mean. And it generally means the uplands of Central Asia. Mm. So there's a, a great organisation called Isimod working with scientists and development specialists in this region and they've come up with this good developmental and scientific categorization of what the Himalaya is. It maps an area of upland, if we can call it that, that stretches from Afghanistan through northern Pakistan, northern India, across onto the Tibetan plateau that is within the People's Republic of China. And then it goes through the two Himalayan states of Nepal and Bhutan and stretches over into the top of Burma Mm. uh, and actually comes down into northern Bangladesh as well because there's like a mountain range that flips back on itself and comes into northern Bangladesh and northern Burma. And basically all of this upland has been created because the Indian continent smashed into Eurasia 60 million years ago and just pushed this entire region upwards, Mm. right? So it's still rising. The crash is still going on. The geology is still evolving in this region. It's literally Asia rising Mm. in that reason. Ah, nice synergy. Yeah, (laughs) it's, it's being pushed up, growing and still creating water cycles for the whole of South, Southeast and East Asia. Yeah. Uh, all of the water cycles are dependent on this upland. Really dependent. Dependent doesn't even start to cover it by the sounds of it. Yeah, when we talk about the Himalaya, particularly in the context of the policy brief, we're also thinking about the rivers that emerge from it that mm. provide water to most of East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. We're talking about two to three billion people. Yeah, so there's a scholar, a historian called Kenneth Pomeranz that came up with this uh, notion of the greater Himalayan watershed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, in the policy brief, we're not just talking about the Himalayan uplands, but the way that the, the water cycles that come down from these uplands and, and the rivers that flow from this in the greater Himalayan watershed fan out from this upland through Pakistan, India, Southeast Asia, and the Yangtze and the Yellow River in China are also from them. Mm-hmm. So the nature of rivers is that 
that they don't listen to territorial borders. They don't pay attention to those sort of things. So the river is an important resource worth fighting about, I guess, if you uh, want to maximise your use out of it. So how does this kind of play into the territorial aspects of the Himalayas? So most of the regions that Ruth just described, a great deal of the borders between different states are heavily contested and we have transboundary rivers flowing through those areas. And the way that you've described it as this is a resource worth fighting for seems to be how the Indian state, the Chinese state and the Pakistani state tend to think about these rivers, that Mm. these are resources that we are competing for. And what we go through in the policy brief is the environmental effects of that geopolitical contestation by these states and the effects that this has on local environments and local peoples. Mm-hmm. And at times they are fighting about the exact same river then. So the water that starts upstream will soon be downstream. There's playing nice to some extent, I guess. There are water treaties in effect. There's some history of cooperation. So mm-hmm. the Indus River Water Treaty between India and Pakistan from the 1950s is generally thought of as being fairly successful. But what we're seeing at the moment with the advent of new infrastructure technologies and renewed contestations over the region between India and Pakistan, that India is starting to talk about building more dams on the Indus River, which is Pakistan's main supply of of water for irrigation and for drinking. And and so those political contestations coupled with a newfound willingness to build enormous dams on these rivers Mm -hmm. India is threatening to cut off Pakistan's water supply, basically, and this is a really unsustainable situation. Is there much planning that goes into the... (laughs) I I knew the answer before I asked it, (laughs) but... should cut that laugh out. Um, No, no, no. The laugh is... The laugh is a telling answer, so... There's a lot of planning. Yeah, I know, but... Positive planning or... uh, There's uh, a lot of state-level planning, but there's not much interstate cooperation. I'm just trying to gauge how much of an impact these sort of structures have on the environment and if that's kind of acknowledged the, in the, the building. The structures in terms of the hydropower like, dams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got lots of dams going on. That affects the water flow down the stream. That affects the local environment. No. No. I don't think so. Um, It's complicated, right? Because all of these states are f- emerging fast. There's so much development going on. To give a bit of historical perspective, They had a lot taken from them during the colonial period and they have a lot of catching up to do in terms of getting their fair share of the world's resources. Mm. But Mm. the way these things tend to happen is that you get your resources or you extract your resources from places where there's smaller populations and less powerful people who won't be affected as much by the resource extraction. Right, So the Himalaya has an amazing source of hydro energy potential and there's not many people there to complain about it Mm. and also it gives these states an opportunity to solidify their control over these border regions where there's a lot of different ethnic groups. There isn't as much of a historical connection between those places and the centres of power in those states. So there's planning, but it's planning in terms of how do we solidify our control? How do we extract energy because we really need energy? How can we make grids that cover the country and kind of try and reorganize the environmental flows so that they operate within national boundaries as opposed to the ways that they've developed over millennia. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It sounds a, like a bit of a quagmire, appropriately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is a lot of it just dam building for the sake of dam building? So is China building dams so that India can, uh, can build less part, dams? It is partly competitive. Yeah. So if you look yeah. at the Brahmaputra 
Yalangtampo River in Assam and Tibet, then they are building dams on either side of the river, on either side of the border. Mm. And there is sort of involved in that a threat of we now have the ability to cut off your water supply. Mm-hmm. The people in these regions don't tend to have that much say in the national level politics. I think that's particularly clear in the case of China, but it's similarly true in the case of India as well, although there's more protest and resistance mm. in India. With the Yalong Sampo River, so now most of the way that China's power grids work is that they follow river systems down. So you get like a Yangtze River power shed where you have all of the energy coming from uh, the Three Gorges Dam or the dams further up, and then they channel the energy coming from those power facilities, hydropower centres, down to the towns at the bottom of the river basin, right? So the Three Gorges Dam helps with Shanghai, the bottom of the Yangtze River Basin. And so what they've done with these transboundary rivers, so the Mekong, which flows into Southeast Asia, and the Yalongsampo, which flows into India, they're not diverting the rivers yet so much as diverting the hydropower energy that is associated with the river and feeding that back into national grids. There's some sense of diverting the water so it can be used for irrigation and China has massive rediversion of uh, water schemes that are trying to send water from the south of the country to the north, which is really water poor. Mm. But the majority of the kind of refiguration has been in diverting the energy coming from the rivers into power grids that are nation-based as opposed to following the flows of the water. It's still competition for resources. It just works at a more abstract level than actually blocking the water. Mm. So how much of this is harmful or beneficial to local communities? Because it sounds like there's a lot of downriver benefit, literally, from these kind of activities. But Through energy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's going to have a big impact on local communities. So the dams have a set of damaging local impacts that aren't felt in the rest of the country. But there is a lot of work being done in India to connect more places to the electricity grid and to provide electricity for poor villages, for remote areas. I mean, there is still an increase in electricity and power for people who are nearby, Mm. but they have to live with the damaging local effects of the dam. So what do you think needs to happen then to better manage this area? That's the thing. The kind of best practice for looking after river environments internationally is this idea of river management schemes. Mm. And you can have transnational river management schemes that try and incorporate this idea of ecosystem services. So that is the benefits that natural or ecological systems provide to us and to the world uh, and not just reduce them to a resource of either water or power. Mm. Looking after wetlands, it means looking after the uh, animals that live in the area, so on. So there's this weird thing going on in the Himalaya. Uh, there's a couple of weird things going on. But on the one hand, there is attempts to try and manage it. There's an organisation called Ramsar that sets up conservation of wetlands. And there's a lot of Ramsar sites that are managed internationally, almost like a UNESCO site mm-hmm. across the region. So they're being managed. And there is things like, particularly in China, they've done a lot to try and, I mean, not always very informed by science or informed by best case science, to manage what they call the water tower of China, like the Sanjiang Yuan, the three rivers headwaters. Mm. They are doing something, but there's this weird competition that you get between the efforts to do conservation and the push for development and extraction of resources, which is like a massive push in these countries. And on the other hand, as Alex was saying, the securitization, Mm. right? So you have 
an impetus to do something to preserve it, right? It's not like people are stupid and they don't get that if you don't protect your headwaters that you are not going to have water, right? They get that. So there is some push to do it, but it's being kind of overtaken by these other needs, the needs of the state, the needs of security and the needs of development. So a lot of these issues are securitized. It's an international relations term for um, how something becomes seen as a security threat. So the Indian state and the Chinese state and the Pakistani state have these border conflicts in the Himalaya, and that leads to militarization, and that leads them to compete and then to start talking about the rivers as though they're a matter of national security, that we need to increase our own water security. Once the state securitizes an issue, it tends to think through military solutions to the problem. Mm -hmm. And they're doing this competitively along contested borders, uh, which means that a lot of the development is actually done by the military rather than by civilian actors or private companies or state-led companies. So Mm. in India, for example, the Border Roads Organization, the BRO, is is doing most of the... It makes (laughs) BRO for structure. (laughs) (laughs) They're responsible for building most of the border roads, which is sort of the main way that the state is delivered into Himalayan India. It comes in via the military. Mm. Uh, And so when you're thinking of something as, as a security threat rather than an environmental problem, that really changes the way that you tend to govern the issue that you're looking at. Mm. So we think that it's necessary for the states involved to engage in confidence-building measures to basically try and get along together, but also building of new international governance architectures that can treat the rivers and the mountains and the climate as a resource that needs to be protected rather than a resource that needs to be fought over. Mm. Mm. Because it's a zero-sum game. If you fight over it, everybody loses. By having soldiers there, by doing this, you're destroying the environment that you're actually trying to protect and that you need to sustain in order to give water and energy to your people, right? Mm. So it's like fighting over it, nobody wins, yeah. right? But if you cooperate over it, then there is this way that you could share the resources. It's a big ask for for any country really to engage in that sort of cooperation. Mm. But the model that you do point to in the... Latrobe Asia brief available now is how the Antarctic is managed. Yeah. Mm. There's a couple of examples of quite successful environmental management treaties that take into account scientific voices, scientific advice. So mm. Ruth mentioned ISIMOD, an intergovernmental organization operating in the Himalaya that circulates scientific knowledge. So we think that there's potential for that institution to play a bigger role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also advocate for. Um, local peoples to have a greater say in, in governance issues because yeah. they're the people affected by environmental damage first. And they also have a lot of knowledge. So that mm. was another thing I was going to say. This this area isn't just about the competition between big nation states. Uh, what you mm. also have is mountain areas tend to produce a lot of linguistic and cultural and along with environmental diversity, mm-hmm. right? So what you've had in the Himalaya historically has been like a patchwork of loosely affiliated nation states with different combinations of trading and sometimes religious and sometimes akin relationships. It was more like a loose confederation. The idea of that place being ruled and territorialized and made part of a state is really quite recent. Mm. It's really only in the since since the 50s. Since the 50s. Yeah, that 50s and these, like, that yeah. the Indian state and the Chinese state Started to but even Nepal going up into mm, the mountains. They're inhabited by incredibly diverse array of peoples who have historically had tenuous relationships with 
with the plains empires like the British Raj or Qing China. Mm-hmm. And so the folding those local peoples into bigger nation-building projects and centralising governance in the region, it really exacerbates the environmental damage that you see because you have decisions being made from Delhi and Beijing about places that those decision-makers aren't particularly familiar with and they're not necessarily taking into account local voices. So one of the other things we argue for is the sort of decentralisation of governance in the region. Yeah, because Isimod is actually working on a model of sharing scientific knowledge and sharing development strategies across the region. I mean, that's really good because you're dealing with similar environmental situations. Or There's this weird thing that in the mountains, there can be more commonality between places that are thousands of kilometres apart, but at the same altitude, mm. uh, right? So you can go in one <laughs> valley and go for, you know, 30 kilometres and go through five ecosystems. But the ecosystem halfway up the valley might be the same or similar to one that's like thousands of kilometers away and you tended to get these like bands of ethnic groups and cultural affiliations that were happening along altitudes that are now being cut into pieces and they're going up and down altitude you lose the knowledge by slicing them up into little bits we're not advocating for the removal of states we're saying that maybe at a sub-state level that these groups can start being allowed to work together Um, There are are some examples, say, of a a state like Sikkim in India that's a very small polity that has begun introducing protocols for environmental behaviour and it's in the northern part of the state. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that we think can work on a broader scale. Local governance brought in with the needs of local peoples Mm. rather than dictated Mm. to from the capital cities of these places. Because there's still a lot of knowledge in these regions about how you manage these environments. Yeah. You know. So how much input do you think this sort of thing would need? I hate the term Western world, but I, I'm struggling to find a better Just one money. than this. Yeah. India and China really do not mm. want Western intervention, which is completely reasonable and historically valid in my opinion. Yeah, the reason we um, got in is it's is more Western that um, <laughs> climate change and the environmental destruction of the Himalaya will have global consequences and we all need to help pay for protection and management, but it's ultimately up to the local peoples in the region to fix. Another way that states and communities that aren't of that region could actually help was to come up with better frameworks internationally for dealing or thinking about how we face the climate crisis. So, for example, there's a a UN protocol called the Clean Development Mechanism. So this is like the green fund that's supposed to be, you know, helping us deal with climate change. It payrolls dams Mm. because the hydropower companies got green energy. It's green energy, yeah. Mm. Like I remember seeing this dam in China that was a massive concrete dam in the middle of a gorge with a concrete factory at its base spewing out carbon dioxide and they were dredging the river in order to make the concrete to produce the dam and the dam had a massive sign on it that was like low-carbon green energy. Yeah. Right? How's that happening? You can get good hydropower, small hydropower, but these states are making massive statement dams that are actually really destructive. So So the scientific technical organisations run by international institutions like the United Nations, they could stop supporting this particular form of development. Or at least revise their criteria. Revise their criteria. Because mm. it's, mm. it's so, it's kind of seems unfair because, you know, nations like the United States are removing their dams because they've recognised what their ecological, even hydrological impacts are on rivers. Mm. Right? And we're encouraging them to be built in a seismically unstable 
<laughs> um, mm. a developing nation that is going to be experiencing the impacts of climate change that are already going to mess with the river flow running into these dams. Mm. There's an interesting thing with how these regions deal with the Himalaya in that you can have a lot of expertise in dealing with the Indian state or the Chinese state and not know anything about the Himalaya, mm-hmm. right? Like I don't know anything about desert management and I'm Australian, yeah? We're not giving people descriptions of how you should manage the entire of the Indian state. We're just saying that in this particular instance, there are some management issues that could be looked at from an international relations perspective and looked at from an environmental history perspective that there are some things that we can suggest, Mm. right? Some of that decision to put forward that um, opinion comes from watching damage happen and, and trying to think through as our responsibility of people who are invested in years in looking at the area to respond to that to the issues there. And another thing is that actually Australia is pretty crap at most environmental issues, like bad, but we've done all right in Antarctica. We've managed an ice cap. Mm. It's actually a weird environmental achievement in the globe, the management of Antarctica. So there is a lot of expertise coming from Australia into how to manage ice caps. And then what we're trying to say is this needs to be managed as an ice cap. Mm. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks Thanks for having us. And you can read more about these ideas in the third issue of the La Trobe Asia Brief, available now from the La Trobe Asia website. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can follow Alex Davis on Twitter. He is... Alex E. Davis, NGN. And you can follow Ruth on Twitter. She is... Water the underscore planet. And you can follow La Trobe Asia. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.